Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke to Judd Apatow. Judd Apatow, if you don't know, is a director, producer and writer of many of the biggest comedy films and hit TV shows of the last two decades, including 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, Funny People, This Is 40, Trainwrecks, Freaks and Geeks, Love, The Larry Sanders Show, Crashing, Girls. His new movie, The King of Staten Island, is available to rent at home now. By the time this has been on, I will have watched it. Now, among his many other accolades, Judd Apatow gave me a Hollywood career. What a great man he is. Any of you that have taken the time to watch one of my films will probably want to immediately now send a bouquet to Judd of thanks (laughs) just for my particular journey on celluloid. Judd lives in Los Angeles with Leslie Mann and uh, their daughters, Maud and Iris. Maud's also in uh, the King of Staten Island. Hey, so this is a good conversation for me to have had because obviously I did those films with Judd. It's an integral part of my growth and journey and learning. And he's a lovely man and he's a sort of a comedy prophet, I would say. He really understands comedy deeply. He's created a genre. He's a wonderful fella. Let's listen to some comments now for what from the James McCleary episode. It's ages ago. No, it's not. All right. <laughs> Here's a, some comments for an episode we've done in the past. This is from Diane Devome. Thank you for this conversation with Dr. James McCleary, the creator of lo- loads of great work. I've been facilitating these types of groups for 25 years. I saw the documentary, The Work, and I love that you're bringing this work to the attention of your viewers. It's important and valuable, especially during this time in our world experience. Thanks, D- Diane. It is. He's an amazing man, and I want to learn more from him. I'm going to learn more from him. Patrick McDonald says, you just convinced me to subscribe to Luminary to hear this podcast. That is the kind of comment we need. That is the kind of comment that's good for old Russ. <laughs> Mary Algen. That's a pretty powerful documentary. It's a bit like shamanism, recalling the shards of your spirit that have been fragmented. Yes, we have to find a hole. We have to find these deep organs within ourselves. Now, let's get into this podcast with the great Judd Apatow. If you, I'm not going to promote myself anymore. You know who I am. You know what I stand for. Let's listen to this great man of comedy, Judd Apatow. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Judd, thank you very much for joining me on Under the Skin. I am so happy to be here, Russell. I knew this would happen one day. I wanted it to happen. I'm very uh, grateful to talk to you, not least because you, albeit briefly, gave me a lovely Hollywood career, which I very (laughs) much enjoyed. Thank you for that opportunity. I feel like like I've been a part of your life. I feel like I've affected your life. You know, like sometimes you think, I changed the trajectory of someone's life. For good or bad, I was a sliding door for you. A radical one, and I think ultimately for good, because if I'd not ever experienced some of the things I experienced working on your movies and the movies that I got to work on as uh, subsequent to that, and I still occasionally do films, but that was definitely a sort of a kind of apex. Yeah, I'd still be curious about that world and about my own ability to withstand it. You've sort of created a sort of a personal studio, a recognisable brand, become a sort of an auteur and sort of a fully realized comedic artist is that something you imagined at the beginning of your career when you were like writing for other people when you were doing stand-up and stuff 
I didn't think about any of that at all. I wanted to do stand-up. That's all I wanted to do. I didn't pay any attention to movies. I wasn't trying to learn how to direct or write. I went to school and studied film, but literally just because there was no stand-up major. And I thought, what's as close as I can get to stand-up in college? And so I didn't prepare for any of it. And I didn't even think about it in those terms. I think in my head as a kid in 1985, I thought, I want to be Bill Murray. How mm. am I going to get to be Bill Murray? And at the time, I didn't realize there was no scenario that that was going to happen. There was no level of charisma or talents. I did not have the key ingredients. But that probably was the quiet dream or to be, you know, Seinfeld or somebody like that. Before the TV Seinfeld, just from when he was a, an amazing comedian in the 80s. And uh, so I, I think I just, I love comedy. There's nothing more fun than meeting somebody like you and thinking, what would a movie be like if Russell was the lead? And, and collaborating with people like Stoller and Siegel and trying to figure out what would that be? That, that's the thing that we love the most. It's pretty rare to um, be able, uh, often people in your uh, position like uh, that are good at facilitating other talent aren't also themselves uh, comedians in their own right and performance artists. So you have like a, uh, how do you think that evolved? Do you think when you was writing with and for Gary Shandling, how do you like, uh, what are the relationship between material that you generate for yourself and material that you generate or facilitate for other people? You know, when I was a kid, I used to do interviews with comics uh, just because I wanted to meet comedians. So there was a high school radio station and I started a show and then I was able to trick people into talking to me. They didn't realize it was a high school radio station. So I would call people like Jay Leno and Gary Shandling and I would get them to talk to me. And then I'd show up as a 16 year old kid and they would be very annoyed, but they would still do the interview. And uh, one of the people I interviewed then was Harold Ramis. Who, who, you know, wrote Ghostbusters and directed Stripes and Groundhog Day. And he talked about writing jokes for Rodney Dangerfield as a young person and, and talked about writing things, uh, you know, for other comics. So someone planted that in my head, like, wait a second. While I'm learning to be a comedian, I can sell jokes to other people. And no one else wanted to do it. That was the key to the whole thing. If I was at the improv and I, I was a host there for many years, emceeing and doing stand-up, no other comedian there wanted to write jokes for another comic. Everyone was like, I want to be a star. I lived with Adam Sandler. There was no scenario that he would sit home and write a joke for another person. He was on his own trajectory. All of this needs to get me to the next place. But I thought, I can't believe I can pay my rent if I write jokes for Shanling or Dennis Miller or somebody like that. And then I just started getting interested in writing in other people's voices. The first hilarious job I had doing that was writing jokes for Tom Arnold. That was the first good gig because he comes to town and he's, he's dating Roseanne and he wanted to write an act that made fun of the fact that everybody thought he was this loser who's just, you know, sucking off of Roseanne's teat, right? And he, he was very funny and open about, let's just make fun of it. And we created this comic persona that was very self-aware. And he was hysterical. And then one day Roseanne said, I want you to write for me now. And then I spent a year going to her house on the weekend, sitting at her breakfast table. She'd take out all her notes and we would write jokes for what became uh, her, I believe it's her second or third HBO special. 
And I was 21 years old, sitting with Roseanne, who I, I, I'm not sure how old she was then, but she was a mother and a, an, an adult. I don't even know how I did it. I think I probably just took notes really well and was kind of a pleasant audience for her to riff with, which I'm sure you, you know what that's like. Like, the person may not even be writing anything, but they're so fun to talk to that it gets you going. And I feel like I did that for people. I suppose like that comedy uh, requires connection. You require like a, eventually and ultimately a, a positive audience response. So engaging with people that you feel uh, create fertility in you is definitely valuable as a comic performer. And like I suppose, um, like I, it's surprising that when you were that young, you were able to do that for, you know, for, as you say, an adult mother. You know, it's like it's been pretty impressive are you aware of what you were doing and did you have the balls like with like as you said with like tom arnold to sort of direct because often what's funny about people is sort of quite close to being kind of humiliating and yeah i think that that is the hard part you you would have to look people in the eye and say you know what i think the joke is about you (laughs) you know i remember i was talking to bob goldthwaite who's a great guy and he did the larry sanders show when i was a writer there and there was an episode that he was in, and he's hilarious in all his scenes, but Gary didn't tell him that in all the scenes he wasn't in, that Larry Sanders and Artie were making fun of him. And uh, and one day, uh, you know, Bob said, you know, that was like really painful for me, but it was painful because they just nailed me. It was all true. And I didn't know that that's what was happening in the other scenes. And... That was a funny thing at Larry Sanders. People would come in to self-satirize, but you would have to say, well, this is the way people make fun of you behind your back. Like Gary Shandlin was kind of a, like, um, almost like, I don't know, a, without being cross-denominational, like a priest of comedy. He's so interested in truth. Like, you know, the, you, truth, truth. Like, that's one of the things, and I've heard you talk about that, 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 that quality that he had. Um, that's makes comedy quite a, potentially quite a, a dangerous tool. Like, with, with your own comedy that you're writing about, that, you know, your own life, your family, your perspective, your, your personal perspectives, your vulnerability, is it, d- does it ever feel like a dangerous thing to you, comedy? I, I think it does because when you're doing it right, you're, you're right at the razor's edge of truth. Sometimes I'm writing about myself. Sometimes I'm writing about observations of my friends. You're always trying to be sensitive to the people in your life. You know, if you're, you know, talking about them or giving away their secrets, it's ultimately a soup of observed uh, ideas, things you're just making up and things that may have happened to you. And, and no one really knows what the soup is. No one knows what the what the mix is, but I think that's when people are most pulled into a story because they feel it's true. I feel that way about uh, you know get him to the drink, get him to the Greek. You know, we talked a lot about addiction and and how that character would uh, you know handle his quest. I remember there's a scene where you yell at Jonah Hill uh, because he got rid of your drugs, and you really go off on him, and it's scary and it's beautifully acted. And we knew that was something that you understand, understood what a moment like that was. But also a lot of the movie was some observations I had about friends who were in rock bands and they would be on the road and one of the members of the band would go off the wagon 
and they would all have to sit around and decide if they were going to cancel the tour or let him score for the rest of the tour. And they knew it might put that person's life in danger, but everyone's got to eat and we're all here and we got 25 more shows to do. So that's where it becomes this combination of observations from the filmmakers' lives or things they've just seen and things that, you know, the actors and the writers have gone through. And, you know, to me, that's what makes art most interesting. How is you doing that with, uh, like, uh, uh, Pete Davidson? I know that the film talks, you know, he's got a pretty dramatic and interesting like real life story pete specifically like losing his father in 9-11 how did you develop and evolve uh the king of staten island with pete davidson well you know what the movie is about is it's a kid who's a slacker his sister goes to college their dad was a fireman who died and after his sister goes to college he's just a pothead hanging around kind of lost doing some low-level drug dealing and his mom decides maybe I should have a social life again. And after not dating for a very long time, she starts dating another fireman. And this forces him to confront everything that hurts him, that's holding him back. All of his damage comes to the surface by having to hang out with this guy, played by Bill Burr, and Marissa mm -hmm. Tomei plays his mom. So obviously we're in very personal territory for Pete. And how we looked at it was... In real life, when Pete was 15, uh, he became obsessed with comedy and started doing stand-up and doing open mic nights. His father was a, a firefighter who died in 9-11. And it was traumatic in a way that is, I think, probably unique to that because you're tied to a national tragedy. And I don't think you ever are allowed to heal and move on because people talk about it every day of your life. Whatever your pain is, it's re-imprinted on a daily basis, it's hard to get to the next place because it's always so present. In addition to just how big a trauma that is, he was seven years old when that happened. So the movie is a bit of an imagining of, you know, what would have happened to Pete if he didn't find comedy and that wasn't, you know, a savior for him to have that outlet and he was just sitting at home smoking pot dreaming of maybe being a tattoo artist but not really working hard at it and about to go into serious crime. So the story is completely fictional, but in a way it's emotionally very, very truthful and it's a way for him to explore really trauma and grief and how someone struggles to heal. When you create a, uh, a story like that that is both resourced in truth dependent on the specific and i must say from my perspective brilliant abilities of a comic like pete davidson and then you have to incorporate ideas like that there's he's at a axis between um you know crime going down the wrong path and realizing his artistic dream in this case as a tattoo artist um did you always understand how to i watched your masterclass thing which i thought was amazing you know like you did a oh, course on masterclass yeah it's brilliant um like did that always did that come this see the you know there's one thing sort of sitting with roseanne and pointing out what's funny takes a certain kind of boldness and then when you get to that point of constructing screenplays and story and the necessary grafting of like a structure and drama onto something like a vehicle for pete davidson's talent how do you intuit that? How do you know how to do that? I think I mainly know how to do it from working for Gary Shandling at the Larry Sanders Show. 
you know, in real life, Gary Shandling used to host the Tonight Show when Johnny was out of town or taking his break. He would alternate with Leno, and he did that for a few years, and he found that world to be really interesting. He said one of the, one of the moments that led to making it up was he saw the producer, Fred de Cordova, trying to calm little Richard down in a hallway. <laughs> <laughs> and little Richard's pissed off about something, and he's just trying to tell him it's going to be okay, and he just thought, this world is so fascinating. And he liked the idea of the metaphor of the curtain, that we have our public face, but we're very different uh, on the other side of the curtain. You know, we're not telling the truth most of the time. We're trying to present a certain face to the world. And Gary always said that he thought that most people are pretending most of the time. And when they are honest and when they look you in the eye and tell you the truth, it's a big deal. That was his, his theory of it. And Gary, Gary was funny about whether or not the show was truthful to him. He obviously knew he was tapping into his issues of ego. He was fascinated by ego and the way ego gets in the way of love. And he would talk about that very explicitly. And he would say, the Larry Sanders show is about people who love each other, but show business gets in the way. That's how he described the show. But he also said that he wasn't like Larry Sanders, which in a way might be the truth, but also was a bit of a lie. And so, you know, we would all laugh when he would say, I'm not like Larry. And he would say, I'm not like Larry because Larry Sanders couldn't make the Larry Sanders show. He didn't have that uh, separation. He couldn't observe himself. He wasn't that wise. But the truth is, Gary was much closer to Larry Sanders than he wants to admit. Where Pete is an open book. Pete would, he's never bullshitting you ever. He's completely transparent. You know, that's the thing I think people are interested in is that if he's down, he will t tell you he's down and he will show you he's down. If he's up, he will be up. He's not a people pleaser in the sense of just trying to make everybody happy all the time. He's, he's pretty emotionally transparent. And I think from working with Gary, I understood what the work was, which is digging down deep, being as honest as you can be. And I think, ironically, Pete's probably even more honest than Gary about who he is. Mm. So you find ways of, in a sense, identifying a kind of pinnacle of, of that character, like confronting that, like if someone has the transparency of Pete, how do you put that in a place that it could be really observed like seeing the choice that that character makes is that character going this way or that way how does and what's it like to watch um i i, I really obviously admire bill uh, burr as a comic very much what was he like as a presence and as an actor well he was just fantastic because i didn't know bill that well i just admired him at the clubs i'd i'd watch him do stand-up and i've done shows with him and i've never met anybody who is so passionate and energetic every show seems like he's doing it like it's the last one he'll ever do he you know he's so present it's really like a fierce hysterical performance and he likes to set up a premise that he knows maybe the audience will not agree with and then try to talk him into it and it's really hysterical and fascinating how he how he works i had seen him act and and i could tell that he was very good but what was surprising was how comfortable he was being emotional on screen, being soft. Uh, he, you know, 
he, he didn't have a lot of bravado. He wasn't just looking to score. He, as a, just an actor, he, it wasn't like he thought, I'm going to kill in this movie. He approached it like a very serious actor creating a part. And a lot of the, I think the main reason the movie works is it's kind of a love story between Pete and a potential stepfather. And will Pete open his heart to this blowhard guy uh, who's a mess? He's a mess, but probably a mess in the same way Pete's character's dad was a mess. Just a normal human being, married before, probably wasn't the best husband, not the worst. Just, just someone trying to do better. And that's the magic of the movie is that in real life, Pete loves Bill. You know, they, they're, they, you know they're, they've known each other since Pete was like 14, as a little kid, Pete used to go see Bill do stand-up. He actually said hello to him a couple of times, got his autograph when, he, when Bill opened for Dane Cook somewhere. And then he saw him with his mom in Atlantic City when he was 14 or 15. And they saw him by the elevator. And I think his mom said, this is my son Pete. He wants to do stand-up. And Bill said, uh, she says, do you have any advice? And Bill says, don't sign anything. <laughs> <laughs> which bill uh, says you know that turns out to be good advice actually um but you know a lot of this work is about you know i always say to people it's about people who are stuck you know i was talking to mindy kaling she's like i think all your characters are stuck i used to not use that word i always thought there are people that something needs to happen to them it's almost like hitting a bottom for them to begin to make a change so in Funny People, Adam Sandler's character, you know, uh, has leukemia. And, you know, your character is hitting, you know, uh, a, a drug bottom. And, you know, the 40-year-old virgin is caught and shamed for being a virgin. And in every movie, someone has something happen. And for Pete in this movie, his, his, the thing that happens is his sister leaves. And now he lives alone with his mom. And it just hits him what a loser he is. And it puts him in a little bit of a manic episode as he realizes that he's going nowhere and now he has to get along with this guy who's pushing him for the... F no one's ever pushed him to get his shit together before and how hard he fights against that. How do you... Uh, see, like, uh, that we're talking about with Gary Shandling, truth, authenticity, and um, with Pete Davidson, truth, authenticity, and like we're thinking about a lot of your films, it looks like that they're like even from the fact that you encourage actors to improvise and like find a lot of truth on set, feels like you're dealing with truth. Do you with when you're making films consider the social environment that those films are going into and what they are saying? For example, uh, post me too or like you know like what like you know or po or what's happening now in america do you look at like the like that you're a storyteller you're dealing in truth do you what what do you feel like uh, how do you contextualize them in the broader social um structures that they exist in well some of that is instinctual like when i was a kid you know i was neurotic and insecure around women so a lot of the movies have people being really nervous and that's where the comedy of the 40 year old virgin is, is that he's terrified and he's making mistakes um the you know so so I, I probably have an instinctual 
belief that people should be very respectful to women. Now, the funny part about that is I also think it's hilarious to show people who are not respectful at all as a way to point out how horrible it is. So definitely in movies, all the guys in Knocked Up, the guys in Superbad, they're awful a lot of the time. There's these you know misogynistic conversations, but they're all a setup for them to crash and realize that that's not how you behave in the real world. You can't, as an adult, do that. So Seth Rogen's character is very immature. Uh, you know, they're trying to start a website that just has the naked scenes of celebrities in movies. It's, you know, it's ridiculous. And he has to learn how to be a man and how to behave appropriately. And I don't think you could teach people that lesson without showing the bad side of it. The bad side of it is inherently hilarious. Bad behavior is always fun to watch. But, you know, the end of Superbad is that Michael Sarah and Jonah Hill wind up in a mall buying slacks with the women they love. And because they're being respectful and nice people, you get a sense like maybe these two women might become their girlfriends. That trying to get them drunk at a party was the stupidest thing you ever could do. What you need to do is just be a nice person and you know, look for some uh, genes, <laughs> you know, and that's how I try to get to those ideas. And I think um, with a movie like this, it's different because it is about first responders and firemen and nurses and heroes. And I had been thinking for a few years, I'd like to write about sacrifice. I feel like I have never written about people who are willing to risk their lives for others. It seemed like the last thing that I would ever write about. And as I got to know uh, firefighters, I was very moved by the type of people who are very different than show business people who wake up every day in a great mood, pretty excited to rush out and save someone or help somebody. And it's such a beautiful thing when you're around it. Uh, it, it really makes you feel better to be a human being, that those people are out there. And I know Pete wanted to pay tribute to his dad and his mom, who uh, was an emergency room nurse his whole childhood, uh, and, and acknowledge what it means to be a hero. Yeah, I suppose uh, what sounds attractive about that is that there is purpose and meaning present, and it gives it's um, validating, and it sounds like it makes people very vibrant to have that they're what they do for a living is connected to real meaning, real purpose, saving people's lives, and in fact involves a risk. I wonder sometimes, like I feel like that, um, you know, my own experiences as an actor and a famous person exacerbated my own uh, tendencies to become quite individualistic, quite self-centered. Um, like um, when we were talking about Gary Shandling there and like the Larry Sanders as a narcissistic character, like I suppose, like, uh, like, and Gary Shandling's defense that a true narcissist wouldn't have an awareness of their own narcissism. It's, uh, I feel like, um, there's a sort of a growing sense of obligation that these giant industries, uh, like the film industry, have a uh, do do you feel have a duty to tell stories about meaning and purpose uh, to um, 
what do I want to say, sort of elevate us, you know, and even like when, even when like a film like Superbad, which I love, like the, the, what's beautiful about it is that, that they do break out of like adolescent misogyny and they do become sort of beautiful. They realise how much they love one another. There's so, so many things like, I've, you know, I, I feel that your films don't have, aren't mean, you know, like they have good hearted people, obviously flawed because otherwise no conflict or drama, but that they're good-hearted and beneficial. But do you uh, um, ever feel that, that there needs to be more explicit kind of, uh, look, this is what life should be? Or do you not think that that's the role of films? And do you think it's a possibility for films even? And is it something that interests you? Uh, I think that, you know, there's certainly, you know, like everything else, there's room for all of it. I, I think I do it just instinctually because, you know, I don't, my heart really isn't interested in telling stories that are truly dark, that say people may not be good. Like, for instance, I love No Country for Old, old Men, right? Uh, which is an amazing movie by the Coen Brothers. It's so dark. Uh, and I'm so glad that it was made. I think it's a masterpiece. But it's not really what I do. I, I really feel like, what I'm trying to do is, you know, create something entertaining and emotional that makes you happy to be a human being, that makes you want to do better, that makes you understand that we're all flawed and it's hard for everybody. And, and we all have the potential to grow and be even happier. And all my stories seem to be about that. I love explicitly political movies, especially documentaries. And I, I do think... In this era where we see so much darkness, I, you know, I think a lot about Fox News here in the United States. Uh, and where my head always goes is, we all decide what to put in the world. And we can make the world worse or better. We can try to do, think about everything we do in terms of, it, is it positive or is it negative? And there are so many people that are very comfortable with it being negative. <laughs> and that's, that's how they make money. They're just cynical about people. And they're like, yeah, well, who cares if we put on the news and we kind of have a lot of people on saying don't wear masks to the point of the amount of people who watch Fox News who won't wear a mask is much higher than the amount of people who watch CNN. So it's clearly costing people their lives. But... They've monetized it, but they like our channel and we don't want to tell them something they don't want to hear. And so in my head, I, I always think it's, it's simple. Are you helping the world or are you hurting the world? No matter what you do, that's what it's really about. You've done a lot of, thank you, you've done a lot of um, mentoring. Is that something you've consciously done? Like I'm talking about sort of Seth and Jason and Amy and a lot of people have starred in films that you have produced or written, directed, etc. Like, is that something that you... Uh, do consciously and is there a sort of emotional or indeed spiritual component to that? Uh, I feel like I was mentored by people like Shandling and you know I've had other people like David Milch who uh, created Deadwood and co-created NYPD Blue who were very uh, helpful and supportive of me and a lot of comedians who hired me to write for them were mentors like Jim Carrey and Roseanne people like that so I think they trained me to think, 
Well, that's what you're supposed to do. You try to succeed and then you try to help other people succeed and anything you know, try to tell as many people as you can. It's like the master class. I thought, well, I'd love to get this all down so that some kid in college or in his room who's 16 years old might watch this and it might spark something. And I like the idea that that's like a, a little seed somewhere and, and in 10 years, I'm sure someone will walk up to me and go, you know what, I actually sat down and wrote that script because I watched your dumb master class. Like, that's the reason to do it. Uh, but it wasn't always so conscious. I think I was just used to it from people doing it to me, and I naturally took to it. And I also took to it as a fan. I think it's not really any different than when we worked with you, which was you came in. I don't know if you remember the day you met with Nick and then you met with me. And we, were, we both called each other and went, Russell's unbelievable. We got to work with Russell. And they rewrote the script for, for getting Sarah Marshall. It was supposed to be, uh, I think, a novelist. And we all sat down quickly and went, I guess it could be a rock star with, with, with Russell. And everyone tried to get to know you and understand how to create a character for you. And then you made a giant contributions and did improv and... So much of it was from you. And then when it was over, we thought, we'd like to do even more with, with Russell. We don't think we've even scratched the surface of what's there. And then they, uh, you know, Nick, you know, started on Get Him to the Greek. And I don't think we thought, like, we're mentoring Russell. We thought we're collaborating with him. We know he has so much to give creatively. And it's fun to try to figure out how you could really flesh out a character with him and tell an emotional story and still be funny. But I think that process is inherently one of education and mentoring. If someone like you hadn't uh, starred in a movie before, you're clearly, you're learning something by going through the process. And then when you have fun with someone, you just want to do it again, everyone becomes friends. You know, for me, I'm just old now, so if I do it with someone young, it becomes mentoring. But really, I'm a fan of that person. You know, I'm a fan of Seth Rogen, even though he's 16 years old. <laughs> when we do Freaks and Geeks, you know, like I'm instantly a fan of yours. And I'm just, you know, in my head, it's like when I was a kid, I loved Steve Martin. So when we meet you, in my head, I'm like, that's kind of like the Steve Martin of today. And I'm having a blast being a part of it. I'm not thinking about mentorship. I'm thinking about collaboration and what can I what, what can I add to this to make it better? George Shapiro said this beautiful thing that uh, the, the manager of, of, I know you know, but like of Seinfeld and, um, Kauf, uh, and Andy Kaufman and lots of great comedians. He said that when people make you laugh, it's kind of like you fall in love with them a little bit, that they touch yeah. you in some way that's sort of very deep. And I, I wondered what you thought about that idea and how that sort of operates in, say, your relationship with, like, someone that you've just started working with, like with Pete. Do you feel like a sort of a tenderness towards him and stuff? Oh, yeah, I, I definitely do. I mean, very quickly, you think, you know, am I going to be friends with this person? I don't think it's ever happened where I met someone and they were talented but kind of an asshole. And I thought, I'm going to suck it up hanging out with this asshole for the next few years because we're going to make a cool movie. I mean, <laughs> you know, as soon as they're a nightmare, you don't want to do it. I think that emotional connection is the reason why you get excited about it. We've never had that with any movie we've made where we thought, oh, we, 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 we're with the wrong person. This is a nightmare. So on some unconscious level, I feel like you're right. It is like dating. You know, I'll meet Pete and I don't, 
I don't even know why, but I kind of understand him. I understand his pain to some extent. He gets me. He can feel that I, I feel connected to his journey. And so it doesn't, you know, it's not hard. And, and the weird thing is I felt that with Roseanne as a young kid. Wow. Whatever that was, I knew her. And I had a very uh, interesting mom uh, who was very neurotic uh, and sometimes, sometimes manic. And she, you know, she was a real character and really funny, but also explosive at times, very needy. And I think that being around her made me the perfect person to collaborate with a lot of interesting artists who have all sorts of different, you know, emotional issues. And I have emotional issues. So we just, we just get each other. Even as a kid, I met Chandling and he wanted me around and I think he felt seen. Oh, wow. He felt un- understood in some way. Uh, because we also don't want to feel shamed. I remember every once in a while, Shanling would hire someone who was very strong or maybe, you know, Gary was a very Jewish man, maybe someone who was very waspy and Gary would, you could feel it like Gary feels either intimidated or shamed by the way that person looks at him. Where if he looks at me, I have a look like, I get it, Gary. (laughs) (laughs) I've been there. I know know what's going on right now. I know what you're feeling right now. Where somebody else might not really even know how to tune into it because it just wasn't their experience of life. They didn't have a mom like our mom. Like me and Gary, we could talk about our moms and we we understood each other. There's a... um kind of mysticism i think in comedy even sometimes in the language around it uh, uh, make people laugh like it's an involuntary thing sense of humor like it's explicitly a sense that you're feeling for that you're looking for you yourself have talked about intuition a lot and now talks about how it's a kind of a legacy of your childhood and the sort of strategies you evolved to deal with your mother do do you um god rest her soul do, do you feel like uh like that that you're dealing in something quite magical and mysterious in comedy, some a, sort of a tool of revelation. Well, you know, when I was a kid, my parents weren't religious at all. They never talked about it. They didn't even talk about the absence of it. <laughs> <laughs> they, never, they never said, by the way, we know we're godless people and we're not te- filling this hole for you with anything. They didn't talk about atheism. They didn't talk about Judaism. I once said, can I get bar mitzvahed? And they said, no, you just want the money. Because <laughs> <laughs> all the kids were making so much money at their bar mitzvahs. Were they, was that true? You know what? It wasn't true. No, I think I no. felt like, uh, I feel like all my friends were, you know, going to Hebrew school every weekend and I felt left out in some way. And I, maybe I wanted a little money, but I, I, I felt like, why am I home on Sunday alone every Sunday? while they're all in Hebrew school. But, uh, but so that was empty for me. I've only really been able to fill it through, you know, interest in Buddhism and, you know, I'm a, I'm a pop, you know, uh, pop psychology fan. I read everything uh, and, I, and a lot of it is very helpful to me. I, you know, I'll have my Eckhart Tolle by the bed all the time and it really has been very very helpful. But the only time I feel God or just something, you know, uh, the you know, intelligence of the universe oddly is in the moment of creative inspiration. I, I usually don't feel like my supercomputer brain just thought of that. I do get a sense of it coming from somewhere else 
at certain moments when something incredible happens. Can you what can you think of a specific example of something that you feel like oh my god where did I don't even know how I wrote that like where did that well, come from? Uh, you know sometimes something just comes very quickly. I was looking at my notes for this is forty, and I think I thought of the whole thing in like two days, just writing it into my phone on like a, a notes app. It's just like coming very quickly. I've, I've always fascinated by Bob Dylan, who wrote so many songs in three or four years. It almost feels impossible that the human brain could do it at that rate. But sometimes when I'm watching people, they just hit on something and it feels magical. It doesn't just feel like he thought of a good line. Uh, it, it, it feels like something opened up, something spoke to them. There's a moment in uh, King of Staten Island where Pete says to his mom, I'm sorry I've been so hard to handle. And she's been worried about him his whole life, that he's okay, that he's not going to hurt himself. And then Pete, you know, without pause, added, and it's not in the script, he goes, I think it's always going to be hard. Mm. And it was the most truthful moment in the entire movie. And in fact, the movie kind of doesn't work if he doesn't say that. But I didn't write it. He didn't write it. It just landed in one take. He only said it once. And it's the entire reason why we made the movie. Beautiful. Like I feel like that um, thing that Gary Shandling said, I'm sure you're aware of, I don't remember where I saw him say it, but like he said, like all of this endeavor is to capture like one once in a while, some moment of truth will happen. And you think, oh, that wasn't an imitation. That wasn't a construction or a concept. That That was it. You see it in these. And that sounds like it was... One of those where you ca where not only is there the sort of almost divine aspect of creation, but it is somehow also delivered. And I think sometimes, Judd, that the reason that it feels so resonant and why George Shapiro says it's like falling in love and, and, and why you speak about comedy with the reverence that you do is that it is a kind of transcendent form. I think sometimes of comedy that um, the, the reason I think it's such a, a high art form is that, like you said before about the uh, Larry Sanders being a sort of a metaphor for our onstage, offstage mask, no mask personas, that on some level all of us are aware that we're going through life sort of pretending to be something that we're not, working a hustle, trying to keep hold of something, trying to get something, not letting go inside, all of these sort of games we're playing. And then in those perfect moments of comedy, it's like something looks from behind the veil and tells you i yes. know this i know this <laughs> and it's sort of something yeah. very cosmic and powerful and i think about the sort of the archetype of the trickster that is a recurrent uh, perennial uh religious or spiritual idea that the trickster is like in say uh, american mythology like the the hare or the raven or whatever this character that's beyond like these sort of oddly morally ambivalent characters that are neither good nor bad that are not attached particularly to morality don't have the piety of a figure like christ or the serenity of a figure like buddha but are like sort of telling you this is a game this is a game this is not real this is not and there's I, I find that that is one of the, maybe the essential thing about comedy that I find sort of beautiful, the continual revelation of these masks, whether they are the mask of persona or the constructs of our societies that operate on these imagined power hierarchies or imagined you know, structures. Well, I remember we were out, we were, uh, we were location scouting for an important scene near the end of the movie. And in the movie, Pete's 
father was a fireman who died in a hotel fire, we decided not to make it 9-11 because it's so big a subject and means so much to so many people, I didn't feel like a movie could handle it. And I didn't want it to be that everyone was in, uh, in grief about Pete's father dying. Mm. I, I wanted it to be his problem. Yeah. But we're scouting for this important scene, and I was like, well, maybe he like, comes over here, and he stands here, and he looks around... And I look around and I, and I realize that if I shot it like this, it's exactly where the Twin Towers were. And you could see the Freedom Tower peeking out from behind another building. And that is how we wound up shooting this moment. But those moments make you believe in, in, in something else. Yes. And I like that. I, I, I also believe that in terms of casting and sometimes I bumped into Holly Hunter. I was visiting a college with my daughter and Holly Hunter was a guest speaker and I watched her give notes to all these acting students. And then when we were thinking about who should be in The Big Sick, I thought, you know, I just bumped into Holly Hunter and I feel like that's why. I feel like it's because she's supposed to do this. And then she's brilliant in the movie. And that does happen. One of the funny ones was when we were doing the pilot for Freaks and Geeks. I had met Jake Kazan, who was, I think, 21 years old. He had directed one movie when he was very young, and I had never seen it. And I asked him to direct the pilot of Freaks and Geeks, and I had never seen his movie. And then after he said yes, I watched it that night, and it was you know, a detective movie, and I thought... This is nothing like Freaks and Geeks. I mean, maybe I should have watched this before. And then obviously he designed the whole show and gave the notes that helped me and Paul Feig and was a brilliant partner on the entire series. But somewhere in me, I thought, I think, I think he's the guy that's going to join our group. Wow. Yeah, I like these indications of an ulterior intelligence making itself occasionally felt materially sort of in some moments but it's one of the ways you can read reality it's one of the ways you can connect to reality like acknowledging at least some would say honoring a moment like seeing that tower when this subtextual component is like making its presence feel that's pretty beautiful and i wonder even what it is when you sort of when we talk about trusting instinct or things coming from elsewhere where it you know this is not just logical rational materialism is it? It does feel like the very act of creativity, as you have said, is a, a kind of uh, divine act. It's, and that's perhaps the reason that your instincts are so honed and your intuition has been so successful for you is that you have a pretty open relationship with whatever that, whatever that is. Yeah, I, I try to. And maybe that's just the absence of other spirituality. At some point, I, I read somewhere, someone said about life and death, you have to love the mystery. And I thought, well, that's all I got. I'm going to hang on to that because <laughs> I, I don't have any answers. So I better love the mystery because I'm not going to figure this out yeah. at all. I think that's what that ambiguity of the trickster is, is living in that uncertainty, that unknowableness. And I think it's pretty understandable with your parents refusing to either acknowledge or not acknowledge God. Just the, that's a, a space. It's not, it's not even a space. It's not a disgusting thing. May I talk to you briefly about, um, what do you feel about with Maud, who's like, even when she was a kid, she was brilliant in like, you know, uh, this is 40. How do you feel about her 
is she an actor now? Was that like I don't know? I can't. I've not lost track of how old she is. She's like, she like at yes. twenty or something. Yeah, she's twenty two. She's on that TV show Euphoria on HBO, and she also just did that TV show Hollywood on Netflix with Ryan Murphy. And she plays Pete's sister in the movie, and she's got the great part because she's the one who gets to call him on all his bullshit and mm. and tell him how much pain he's causing the family, and they have some great fight scenes together. And she's really good. She's very present and raw and funny. Like her mother, she has that thing where she can go really hard and there's pain there. But for some reason, the humor is also there at the same time. And, you know, when I was younger, I thought, God, I hope I'm not just manipulating my children into going into my profession. At some point, it has to be their own ambition, not just that I like being creative with them. But so far, you know, she really is enjoying it and doing, doing well and is, has worked really hard to know exactly what she's doing. More generally, how do you feel about, like, your... I've got two daughters, Judd. I've got a three-year-old and a two-year-old. And, like, so I'm in an early part of their life where they're sort of, you know, they're in my arms still. Yes. Like, how, how has it been, the journey of watching them grow and become independent? What does that do to you emotionally? It's, uh, I mean, it's very challenging because, uh, you know, when they're little, you have to be completely present. And that was hard for me when I was uh, a young father because I was so consumed with not going bankrupt and having a career work. So to just sit on the floor and play with blocks for two hours, but only be thinking about the blocks is challenging and it almost to the point of a nervous breakdown like i know what i need to do right now we are going to play with these little cars and mm. these little fake squirrels <laughs> and i i had to read a lot of self-help and go to therapy and learn to have a less busy mind in order to be present for them and one of the things that i i realized at some point was uh, and someone said this in a book somewhere that whatever you do as a parent, they're basically going to observe how you handle life, how you handle stress, and that's how they're going to do it. So you think you're whatever, you're creating boundaries for them or you're punishing them or you're trying to guide them. But really, it's all their observation of you. Yeah. And, and that, that was helpful. And then I read a great Deepak Chopra book, which was like seven you know, lesson, spiritual lessons for parents or something like that. And he, he just said, your child uh, is just another soul that you guide for a little while. And that helped me a lot. Just that. Thinking about it in those terms. You don't own your kid. It's not about your ego. It's just another soul you're trying to be there for, assist for a while, and then they're going to go have their life. Was that easy to let go like that or hard? Well, they both still live here, so I guess hard. <laughs> I haven't let them leave the house uh, yet, but, but we, we always joke that we just try to increase the thread count so they'll never want to leave their bed. Their bed is the most luxurious sheets ever, so they never, ever leave. Um, you know, that's the one part of this moment, which is our kids who both would probably never hang out with us are now forced to spend massive amounts of time with us and we cherish every second because it really does feel like oh this board game would never have happened yeah. unless they were stuck here with us and it, it it 
you know, we, we've yet to fully have the empty nest. Maud, you know, went to school and then came back. Uh, and she's probably going to leave soon. And Iris is going to go to college in a year. And, you know, I, I'm not sure what the next uh, phase of it will be. But as of now, the thing I'm most proud of is I think generally they like hanging out with us. I remember, you know, when I was a kid, the idea of just socializing with your parents seemed tough. <laughs> You know, if my mom was like, let's go to the movies. I wasn't like, great. Um, and I feel like they do get a kick out of us some of the time. <laughs> Thank you. Do you meditate? I do some TM, uh, not as often as I should, but I, I've gotten okay at it. And it's really helped a ton. Every day I do it, the day is better. It doesn't mean I won't fight doing it. I will fight to the death to not do it. And yet, every time I do it, my day is way better. Yeah, because like, cause it must have been because of like you, if like Seinfeld's always meditated. So I suppose that would have been the first, you know, person you were around, I guess, that's a pretty good endorsement, especially as he's so pragmatic and non mysterious about meditation like it's just like this is a thing i do that makes things better you don't fuss around with well anything as yes. far as i could see with jerry seinfeld but not that even yeah i i mean i and i've read a lot of books about the brain science of why it works i really understand it and i have sent so many people to meet with uh, meditation teachers from the David Lynch Foundation who have also had incredible experiences, Amy Schumer and Lena Dunham, and it's really changed their lives, I think, for the positive. Yeah. Uh, but yet, if you say to me, Judd, you want to sit down and quiet with yourself for 20 minutes? I'd be like, oh, man, I'd rather go hit that haagen <laughs> in the kitchen right now. <laughs> so I, I struggle with it, but, but it is a, a part of my life. Do you, uh, like, do you feel content and happy and at ease with who you are? And if so, has that affected your ability to be creative when you talk about that initial neurosis, whether it's around uh, sexuality or, you know, or dating or whatever? You know, as that d has become, are you more comfortable and more happy? And if so, does that affect your creativity? I think I have gotten more comfortable and happy, but not enough. There's still probably a core wounds. You know, in, in my therapy, we talk a lot about fight or flight and always scanning for threat. Mm -hmm. And that in life, you're always scanning for threat. My therapist always says, and what you're supposed to do is you, you people will scan for threat and then they decide what the threat level is. And then it, it, it kind of drops, you come down. And the key in life is then you have to seek opportunity. You know, what is the, the positive opportunity here? And that I feel like through evolution, we're all built to assume something terrible is about to happen as a, a way of surviving and not getting killed by a, a predator. And that we have all these instincts that are not based on the modern world. They're based on not getting eaten. And so we feel so much more charge off of small everyday things than we should because we're just built to run around the forest or something. And I try to stay in tune with that. Like, why am I so worked up? This is kind of nothing that's happening right now. My cortisol's kicking up too much. And this is such a stupid thing. And that's been a lot of the work for me. And meditation is part of that. Just trying to get my baseline to be calmer. Yeah. And, then, and then to try to like myself. That, take, that takes, it does take some work. And I don't know how that's wired in. But... For some reason, it's always a challenge. But I guess if I really was cocky, 
I would be unbearable. Yeah. So maybe it's okay. <laughs> I suppose so, because, yeah, who are we, any of us? So I suppose a little bit of doubt in yourself is, from a spiritual perspective, is interesting because so much of spiritual literature and even neurological uh, research suggests that the self is, a, to a degree, a construct, whether there's a, you know, we agree there's a conscious awareness behind it. So if you are overly invested in that and sort of really believe in it, there's, there is something kind of unappealing. But uh, also it is... It's a, surprising because my experience of you I suppose like you know my first encounter with you is, was in a position of power and dominance and then since then it's been as an admirer of your work etc so to hear that you still have that kind of very human sense of vulnerability that doesn't seem so obvious like with Gary Shandlin you get that idea that that guy was on edge it was very present yes. you don't seem like that but that is how you feel huh uh, I do and I'm probably just uh I have kind of a, a Russell brand beard now. You just can't see it. You can't see the insecurity uh, based on how big the beard's, beard's getting. <laughs> I have a good, I like Shandling, I have a good public face of not being as uh, tortured and insecure <laughs> as, as I am. But I think I, overall I'm, I'm, I'm doing well. Probably because I'm just tired. You know, you get older and then you're just too tired to be that insecure. It takes a lot of... Uh, energy both fight and flight are exhausting just sit perfectly still and the yes, yeah. sugary dairy products Jad, thank you well people forget people forget fight flight or freeze so yeah freeze is easier yeah freeze if you can go passive enough <laughs> if you can basically go limp in the world that's a good way of preserving energy Jad, thanks for doing this and thanks for giving over some time i know you're doing lots of stuff at the moment for um, your film i've not watched it because they sent the screener in the dead of night and i've been working today but i'm gonna watch it after the interview and I, yes. I always watch your stuff and I love it and you're thank you very much again for the help in the early part of my career and thank you for your great output and thanks for this interview well, well thank you Russell I've been uh, looking forward to doing this and I'm so happy for you and your family and uh, I buy the books and I'm no listening way. to the the podcast and uh, I even have I will take an occasional one of your cut down moments that you put online with some advice and I will uh, put it aside and save it. And I go, I can't believe Russell Brand is helping me so much right now, but I accept it. This is an indication of, of in the challenges we both face. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Judd. All right, take care. Be well. And you. Lots of love to your family, mate. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand and Judd Apatow. Any lovely, what a lovely conversation. Very cathartic and educational for me. I Love Judd, and it was very sweet to hear him be vulnerable in that manner, particularly towards the end. Right, so listen, why don't you get on a, a Judd Apatow spree, check out some Lena Dunham. I wonder if we've spoken to other Judd Apatow-type artists. Who would you like to talk to that's like that? Pete Davidson, he'd be a lovely guest. What about Amy Schumer? She'd be good. What about him out of uh, the big... The He mentioned it on there, the big sleep, was it called? Robert Jason. The big sick. Jason Siegel, I love Jason. He's next level. He's my friend. I love him. What you want him on there? You're nodding very enthusiastically. Do you fancy him? No. Oh. <laughs> hmm. We're what? not him on now. You've turned around too much attention. No, you've showed yourself up there. No, that's no, that's disgusting. In the meantime, if you enjoyed this conversation, it says here with Kahindi, but of course it means Judd. But that's because I work with people who are drunk on the job. Why not check out some other episodes? Lena Dunham, who I love. Yeah, Lena Dunham. Oh, no, that's the one we started with. I love Lena. And Conan O'Brien, 
who <laughs> you know Karen Bryan is and keep looking at my YouTube channel if that is the way you feel inside thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary